0: Hello, and welcome to the American Writers Museum podcast, where we bring the power of the written word straight to your ears. Last week, we featured a conversation between National Book Award finalist Leila Lalami and American Writers Museum president Carrie Cranston. This week, we are pleased to present a discussion between AWM program director Alison Sansoni and graphic novelist Ngozi Ukazu about the latest installment in her popular Check, Please! series. This conversation was originally recorded virtually via Zoom, We hope you enjoy entering the mind of a writer.
1: Tonight, I just want to welcome everybody to this virtual event for our new online as well as physical exhibit, My America, Immigrant and Refugee Writers Today. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Allison Sansoni. I'm the program director here at the American Writers Museum. Like to thank all of you for connecting with our author events on this new platform. Uh, if you haven't yet checked out the online version of the exhibit or this is your first exposure to the American Writers Museum you can go to my-america.org and find stories and educational resources dealing with what it's like to be an immigrant or a descendant of immigrants writing in America today. One of the faces that you'll see in that exhibit is graphic novelist Ngozi Okazu who's here with us tonight uh, her new book, Check Please, Sticks and Scones, follows up the incredibly popular debut installment of a young Southern gay man playing hockey and baking pies in a small New England town. Welcome, Ngozi. Thank you for being here with us tonight.
2: Hello. It's so nice to be here. Wow. In this virtual engagement, this virtual event. Thank you guys so much for doing this.
1: Sure. First of all, I wanted to um, ask you how your book tour is going. I'm sure this is very different from how you planned it.
2: Uh, yeah, there's. it's so funny. I, I This is like the first time I've ever really done like a lot of like bullet journaling with washi tape and highlighters. And this week I had like all this, all these stickers and all this stuff. But obviously things change, but it's okay. We're able to adapt. The virtual tour that we had was a blast. I had Q&A sessions and live streams, which got so silly and so crazy and so fun. So I don't know. And that way, you know, not everyone can make it to a bookshop in Brooklyn. Not everyone can, you know, go to L.A. So we ended up reaching more people that way. So it was a good farewell to the comic.
1: That's good. That's good. The, I read the, you know, in the first installment of, of the comic, you introduced us to, to hockey player Eric Biddle and his teammates and he, his um, experiences at Samwell University. And where did we leave him at the end of that book? And where does this book find him?
2: So um, one of the questions I get is like, what's, what thematically is a the difference between uh, the first Czech Please book and the second Czech Please book? I think the first Check Lee's book is very much about Biddy as a character, like talking about his sexuality, like learning who he is, and really getting a foothold in Samuel University and on the Samuel Men's hockey team. Where and after he masters that, he's suddenly transported to this much larger universe where he is dating someone who has a very high celebrity profile, and he has to figure out how to mesh this private world that he's figured out with a public world and who he wants to be after college. So I'd say you, like hashtag hockey, which comprises freshman and sophomore year is more about Biddy kind of figuring out kind of his private self. And then the sequel and also final installment is him figuring out his public persona and who he wants to be as he grows up. Yeah
1: one of the things that you know at first you mentioned at first you know it's it's very much an outsider account at first you know he's afraid to tell his teammates that he's gay he's afraid to get hit you know he's afraid to get checked he's and he really grows over the course of the first the comic and then the especially this in the second installment you know he really gets to the point where he's Protecting and empowering other people. It's, it, he's looking beyond himself. Were those, were there directions that you were very sure that you were going to take him or were there, um, things that came up in the writing that surprised you? Oh,
2: yeah. Um, actually, a lot of it surprised me. I was actually just talking with a fantastic writer, Marissa Meyer, today, um, author of the Lunar Chronicles as well as many other things. And we were talking about, how oftentimes your characters will surprise you. You don't really know who they are until the like second, third, or fourth draft. For me, I don't think I figured out who Biddy was until the very end, because as I was writing him, he would make all of these decisions and kind of um, do things I didn't expect. And it's always pleasant when a character kind of...
1: Oh, Oh, you're so... Oh, well. It
2: happens. I I feel like that guy who was really popular, had that viral video of his kid coming in. Coming in, yeah. (laughs) one knows how it is now. Uh, But back to the question, like I think Biddy, it it wasn't really planned. A little bit of it was improvised. I wanted to um, instill in Biddy this core of kindness, but also fear and a little bit of shame and have that be his guiding light to how he interacts with people, how he wants to be treated. And yeah, like he just wants to take care of people, but he desperately also wants to be accepted himself. So,
1: yeah. Well, and he starts to, he starts to want that in that acceptance for others as well. You know, you sort of see him extending that beyond just, you know, I want my teammates to be okay with me. And extending that to, you know, I want you to be okay with who you are. And yeah. I found that outward turn really fascinating.
2: Yeah. So in, um, in Check, Please, uh, the second book, Hashtag Sticks and Scones, there's this whole storyline where Biddy discovers that one of his teammates, um, you know, is in some sort of relationship with a member of a male a lacrosse team. So there's this interesting thing that happens where Biddy, like Biddy is at this point like openly gay, openly queer, and he is proud of who he is. He's still struggling with how he relates to his parents, but he, he knows he he knows who he is by this point. And when he sees this character kind of surreptitiously engaging with you know his own sexuality. I think Biddy's knee-jerk reaction is to say like, oh, he needs my help. I know exactly what he's going through. He's like, he's doing this and this and this, and I just want to be there for him. But actually, I, and I love writing this character, um, which I almost don't want to say it so I don't, don't want to spoil people. But I love writing this character because this character was very much against that. He didn't want Biddy's he help. He didn't want Biddy to try to organize and rummage through his private life. He just wanted to figure things out on his own without being in the limelight and I like that complication because it's the flip side to Biddy's kindness sometimes he projects his own insecurities into others and tries to repair them when he probably should just take a step back and see if they want his help
1: yeah well and learning how to navigate that world has been a big part of his of his story you know, how he, how he fits in with not just in the world of hockey, but also in the world, you know, just generally young men in that time. I was really struck by the immersion in language in, in the books in that you, you know, not, not just the hockey terminology, although I was as a hockey fan myself, I was dying (laughs) laughing at some of it, but like Just, you know, the idea that there is this secret language that people in these high-stress situations speak to each other. Yeah. um, Tell us a little bit about how you, you know, how you learned that language.
2: So, it's so funny. um, When I, so when I first got the idea for this comic, it was my senior year of college and I was doing research on a screenplay I was writing about hockey and I wanted to write this screenplay. Let me take a few steps back. I wanted to write this screenplay to kind of answer the question of um, uh, this this one hockey player I interacted with uh, just definitively said that there was no gay guys on the hockey team. And that, of course, planted a seed in my brain that always wants to just mess with gender and sexuality. And I it sought to answer this question by writing a, writing a, a movie about it, a full-fledged screenplay. And so I had to immerse myself in the world of hockey. And in doing so, I kind of became an ethnographer because it's really like this homosocial environment, one. It's also a very white environment, too. And then it's this whole other realm of sports. And, um, you know, again, it's homosocial, so it's mostly men. And in order, to, in, in order to kind of penetrate that community, I had to learn the language. And it's stuff like just the more surface level stuff of the different terminology in the game. So like, you know, uh, periods and what is icing? What is the blue line? Like, and all that stuff. But it's also the, the other, the other types of language, which it's like, what is tripping? Um, what, what are wheels? Like, like all that different slang that, um, these like people use, just within their own social groups, so I like I have this very like interesting obsession because you might realize I, I am not a white man. I am not <laughs> a white man, a black woman uh, from Houston, Texas. But I have this um, perhaps fascination with, and it's probably obvious by now. But it's like I have this fascination with um, like cultures that are very much not open to me, penetrating them, mastering them remixing them and then just putting them out in the world when I so yeah I mean I'm kind of segueing away from the question but language is a huge part of that to the point where I've had teachers come up to me um, and say that they showed their students my comic and they didn't believe it was me in the back of the book because they expect they didn't expect someone who looked like me to be able to effectively tell a story about you know this environment that I'm not a part of so again, I'm segueing away from the question a little bit, but I remember at New York Comic Con, I was asked to do the keynote speech on the importance of graphic novels and in education. And one of my main theses is that I love, um, I love looking at the world and remixing it kind of in my own point of view. And comics are a really, um, very strong tool for doing that because you have control not only over you know the backgrounds and the, and the casting, but you also have control over like the language and make making characters say what you w- would want them to say. So, yeah,
1: you're creating a you're you're creating a character, not just you know not just in your imagination, not just in words, but in illustration as well. So you're showing people what these people look like and yeah. what they're doing in a you know in a very different way. I think.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's so funny because I remember when you guys first approached me to talk uh, like about at, with the American Writers Museum, it was on this basis of, um, my having a first generation background. And when you're first generation, you are, I mean, it, everyone's experience is different, but for the most part, you're thrown into this world where you are just, it, intrinsically different ostensibly like you are just you just are you're very different you're experiencing a culture for the first time so like in my own progress as a storyteller I want to tell more stories about people who look like me and talk like me like basically nerdy black girls but I was oddly and I, I would say um pretty pretty well equipped to tell Biddy's story because it's an outsider story as well and I tend to look for those stories like, and I tend to like, I tend to just write those stories uh, inherently. I don't know why.
1: <laughs> yeah. What were some of the, the outsider stories that resonated with you growing up as a, a first generation immigrant and as a second generation and as, you know, as a young writer? Oh, it's, that is, that's
2: such a funny question. I think that the the stories that really like struck a chord with me were probably about found family and like they always had that theme. Like, and it could be something like Avatar The Last Airbender where the main character Aang um, loses his entire family because of genocide but is able to kind of reconstruct a family with people from all, di- all all the different nations. So beautiful. But it also extends to a good heist story. Like any good heist film is about constructing a team, and that is just a metaphor for constructing a family. So anything from Snatch to Ocean's Eleven to Ocean's Eight, I, I'm a huge fan of stories where people come together, uh, very disparate people come together.
1: And that's, you know, that that is, that's a team, right? So you're bringing, you know, you're that's, that's where Biddy's hockey team comes together, you know, exactly. and they come together around, you know, they don't really, I'm not spoiling, you know, anything from the first book. I don't think to say that they don't really, there's not a lot of blatant, you know, none of them turn on him. Yes. He is. And so I thought, was that, you know, a really conscious choice to make? Is that just an, a recognition that things have changed?
2: Um, it's, it's so funny because I would say it's a conscious choice. Like if someone asked me, like, are you ever going to have Biddy, like get beat up or something? I would say, no, of course not. But it's also this unconscious thing where those aren't the stories that resonate with me. I love stories of acceptance. I love stories where unlikely characters and unlikely people, um, enter into an environment and they are accepted. And it's I actually I frankly think it, it's, it gets a little tiring reading about stories where, you know, someone someone is different and they are punished for their difference. I know those stories can resonate with some readers. But for me, I find that telling a narrative about the inverse is way more compelling and gets me really excited.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You, you really sort of you do feel in the reading the books that, you know, his joy in yes. what you found and that's you know that comes through really clearly how did the book, how did the work change you know in between the first installment and the second you know you ran this wonder the this incredible kickstarter to take it from a web com- comic to a graphic novel how did that change your writing
2: um you know I would say that my writing didn't change um when it became self-published. So with the Kickstarter, we were just taking the stuff online and putting it into a self-published book. I would say that my writing probably really started to change when we found that new kind of bigger platform of traditional publishing. And and the reason I say this is because with traditional publishing, we suddenly had this delay where I was going to finish the comic, the pages needed to be turned in and We were going to release the ending um, when the book was to hit bookshelves. And in that delay, I found this very interesting space that I didn't really get to exist in when I was making serialized work like every two weeks, publishing a chapter. And that space was a vulnerability where my writing could be a little bit more ambiguous, uh, could be a little bit more, I guess, risky. Um and I think that made for better storytelling overall. There's a, there's an episode or a four part little chapter series where Biddy finally confronts his dad about his sexuality and or like, like almost demands acceptance or questions why he hasn't had acceptance. And I don't think I'd be able, I would have been able to write that if I were <laughs> Releasing the comic on Tumblr every two weeks, it's just so fraught with, uh, with tension and angst. And I'm glad that the readers were able to see that all, um, all together, even though I did release it on Tumblr eventually. I'm glad the readers are able to see that all together in this book for the first time.
1: Yeah. Yeah. What are some, some stories that you've heard or that you've been told at your events about readers who've connected with this story?
2: Oh my gosh! Uh Probably the biggest thing is people just falling in love with hockey for better or worse because hockey you know it'll give you a heart attack. um i I think that overall, there have been so many people who have resonated with Biddy because they're either like queer and southern or queer and they bake or just queer and nice oh happy people um or they resonate with Jack who. Um another another through line in this comic is is anxiety and mental illness and they like seeing a character who has mental illness and deals with it and does not let that define them. So I, I've had a lot of people open up to me about that and I'm always very, very thankful for that. Um it's been it's it's been it, the, the things that people, you know, will share at a convention is just so Oh, it, it, it sometimes just leaves me oh, a little breathless. I have to like sit down because it's they—they they found something in the story that I didn't even know I was putting out there. So, I'm always very thankful for that.
1: You mentioned that your you um that your parents emigrated. That was from Nigeria, correct? How what was it like growing up as um as a child of immigrants in Houston? Oh my goodness! I would
2: say a lot of the a lot of my reflection on growing up as a child of immigrants comes from it's very recent. Well, it's it's funny because it was something that I was living like through as a kid and a lot of my friends in high school and in middle school and even in college were also first generation in some way. But I think now looking back on being a, a kid And, you know, being first generation, it's, you're kind of, you're kind of playing this game of, I mean, to use the W.E.B. Du Bois concept, you're kind of, you have this double consciousness, which double consciousness, you know, it's, you know, traditionally we're talking about black consciousness and realizing that you have to look at yourself, not only as the person you are, but also through the eyes of the other, which is, you know, um, white, white society. Like that double consciousness extends anytime you're, mar- you're in a marginalized identity. Like realizing that, you know, my name is different. I went by Anne, my middle name, for years because I was like, oh, it's easier to say. Whereas you know, I, I don't do that anymore because, you know, people can figure out how to pronounce it. it. It's small surface stuff like that to also realizing that, um, not everyone has the same experience of how they view their, how they view themselves, um, how they view their hair, how they view how their bodies are shaped, or even just, um, like just your, your culture is not the norm. And so I I think I spent a lot of time assimilating. It's, it's so funny. It's so funny to talk about um, how I'm kind of interested with stories about acceptance. It could be because psychologically, and I know all the participants are leaning in because they're like, man, this is, this is like a therapy session. <laughs> but it's, I write a lot of stories about acceptance and found family because I think I spent a lot of time growing up just assimilating and being like obsessed with um, not being different, but but also making sure that my differences made me like cool. So, I don't know I, I think a lot of first generation um uh students people have that same tightrope walk of like trying to make that difference like the cool part of you but also trying to assimilate as much as you can to the to the overall society.
1: Yeah. Yeah, you write it one of the it's one of the themes in the you know in the comic is the idea of where you know where your home is and where you belong. And discovering a place for yourself and, you know, in Betty's case, it's the locker room and I'm, what is the, what is the place for you where you feel the most at home?
2: Oh my gosh. Uh, live journal, 2005. Um, I mean, but I, I, I joke a little bit. I hope people, I hope people laugh at that one. Guys, I'm I'm going into my standing set. Um, but I, I joke a bit, but I, I am serious. I think I feel very comfortable in a fandom space where like, you have a bunch of people who are united by their love for a story or a character and they're all creating and remixing and reinterpreting with each other. I think I, for whatever reason, I think that has been a place where I get to be myself. Like there's very little, um, there's very little, there's no assimilation between like the thoughts in my head and the fan art that I'm making or the fanfic that I'm writing and what I put out there, it's just, it's almost like a direct flow. So the internet, which is such a millennial thing to say, but I, I think it's, it's true. But then also I love being in real life with real people. Um, if you're, if you're talking about a physical location, however, I mean, I, I like the house that I'm in right now, but I would also say that college for me was a uniquely um good experience. I did have ups and downs, but it, we, there was a lot of encouragement on campus for togetherness and, 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 and a lot of investigation. So, yeah. I see there's questions popping
1: up. <laughs> there's a few questions popping up, yeah, and we'll, um, we'll get to a few of, of those in just a minute. Um, we, we talk a lot about, in, in the Immigrant Writers Exhibit, and also, you know, the idea that there's this obligation that people feel to the people that they came from, to the communities and the places that they came from, to um, to tell a particular story or to do things in a particular way. And, you know, I saw a little bit of that in the comic, you know, Eric and Jack talk pretty frankly about not wanting to let their families down, not wanting to let their teammates down. And so I'm I'm wondering if that's something that you deal with and and how you deal with it.
2: Yeah, in particular uh, um baby and jack have they don't want to let their dads down. They're like fathers are just this metaphor for masculinity and they're constantly in conflict with that. Um for me <sighs> obligations to where I've come from, I think that the only obligation that a writer has Is to whatever voice is within them, and for some people that voice is tied very much to the past. In others, it's tied very much to the present of where they're from. Like I like um, writers who contemporary Nigerian writers are like they're awesome. But to to others, it's also obligation to the history of their sexual identity. Um, They they are in longer conversations with uh, gender. And I think for me, and I'm, I'm, I don't know, that's, that's a really good question. I've always felt that, I, I mean, and to be quite honest in the art that I create, I tend to be a little, I can, I can, you know, just ricochet between irreverence and angst. So I feel like I have an obligation to kind of making sure that there are still stories out there that are heartfelt, but, but, aren't, don't take themselves too seriously. Maybe I come from that, from that lineage, but, um, it's so funny. And you guys have to talk to me in about, you know, in 2022, uh, because I'm working on a graphic novel that is about a Nigerian girl and how she deals with identity. But it's a very, it's a very, um, how, how would I say the contrast isn't between her, and her cultural past and her historical, like, historical past—it's about her and just the society that she's currently in. So I don't know—I don't know where that fits in in terms of obligation, but it does speak to this idea that I have of like I want to tell a heartfelt story, but that's also a little silly and and goofy. So
1: yeah. Yeah. Graphic novel as a form has changed so much in the past, you know, in the last 20 years and especially in the time that, you know, we've seen it grow in, you know, in importance, in prestige. Do you have ideas about where it's going or what you'd like to see happen?
2: Um, you know, I think the biggest reason why graphic novels have grown a bit in prestige, I mean, tremendously in prestige over the last 10, 15 years, um, Is because we're putting comics in schools. I think that graphic novels, even even calling them graphic novels, it's like this attempt to remove from them their comic, their Sunday funny strip past. Um, but graphic novels, I feel like we're going to see them. More, we're going to see them in the curricula of schools. We're going to see them um, being taught not just as supplementary materials, but as the text from which we're drawing our knowledge from. Um, and especially, I think that the the most, um, the richest, perhaps the most rich vein is in autobiographical stories and the nonfiction stories that we see. Um, those, like, there's a lot of dense research in those. So, I don't know, I'm waiting, I guess I'm waiting perhaps for, uh, I, it's, it's hard to explain, but we're, I think once we stop looking at graphic novels as things just for kids or supplementary materials, we're really going to have some nice dialogues about that, that, that are about sequential art.
1: Yeah. Did you ever feel pressure to, to sort of choose between art and writing? Did you ever feel the the need to do just one?
2: Uh, to be, to be honest, not, not so much. I think that, <laughs> In the back of my head, and this is my honest answer: is like if I'm if I'm just writing, I guess I can just draw fan art on the side, and if I'm just drawing, I guess I can write fan fiction on the side. <laughs> I'll get my outlet from something. Um, but I, I think one reason why I actually don't write uh, primarily—I I write a lot, and I, I've written scripts for graphic novels, and I and I write all my prose. But I the main reason why I draw is because drawing is so much faster. It's so much easier for me to just like think of something and draw it rather than, um, you know, deftly craft prose so that people can join me on that narrative journey.
1: Thank you for taking the time to do this tonight. Thank you guys so much. I really appreciate this opportunity.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the American Writers Museum podcast. Tune in next week for a conversation with writer David Schreuer, whose book, The Heartbeat of Wounded Knee, is a sweeping history of Native American life from the Wounded Knee Massacre in 1890 to today, and was the finalist for the 2019 National Book Award. Now go, be inspired, and find the might of a writer in yourself.